Okay, all my ladies out there, I have a very special and exciting announcement. I am hosting with my very, very good friend who I love to death, Caitlin Howe, the Free the Wild Woman Retreat. It's a five-night, six-day experience in Costa Rica, Nosara, Costa Rica, which is one of my favorite places to travel. I go there by myself all the time. It's really a place that I go to recenter, to get inspired. Um, And so when I thought about hosting a women's retreat, that was a place I had to do it without a doubt. So it's five nights, six day experience at a luxury jungle retreat where I've stayed before called Bodhi Tree. And what this is all about is unleashing your inner wild. You're going to be surrounded by some amazing sisters, tapping into your womanhood, releasing what no longer serves you. And of course, you know, we're going to get down into some sensuality, into your, into your desires and understanding how to fully speak your truth. So. This is going to be so much fun. It's three healthy meals a day. You're going to meet some really cool people. We'll talk about relationships and design your ultimate relationship. And if you guys know me, I love surfing. So we're going to have a surf lesson. Even if you're scared of it, don't worry. I promise you will have so, so, so much fun. All right, guys. So check out revampretreats.com slash wild woman. That's revampretreats, R-E-V-A-M-P. R-E-T-R-E-A-T-S dot com slash wild woman. And you'll find some more information on there. I'll be there, your mindset and relationship coach. Caitlin Howe will be there, your self-discovery speaker. And really at the end of the day, it's all about connection and becoming your authentic expression of truly who you are. Plus, we're going to be on the beach and it's time for that. This year has been a shit show. Let's do this together. I love you guys. I hope to see you this May for the Free the Wild Woman Retreat. On this episode of True Sex and Wild Love, Wednesday sits down with PhD student Kenan Hutchinson. Now, if you're not following him on Instagram, definitely check him out. Lots of really great information. Plus, he's funny. So, you know, what's better than that? Him and Wednesday talk all about COVID and vaccines and engaging STEM education equal rights, and the advancement for underrepresented communities in leadership, education, and life. I hope you guys enjoy. Let us know what you think. Well, True Sex and Wild Love listeners, we have a great show for you today. When I say we, it's sad that Whitney's not here to join us, but she's having some technical difficulties. So uh, it's me with you today and our very special guest, His name is Kenan Hutchinson. He is a science communicator, and he is going to talk to us today about vaccines and COVID and your personal health and your stake in this. Kenan, welcome to True Sex and Wild Love. Thank you for having me here. I'm glad to be a part of this. Kenan, what you do is so interesting. We met you, we met each other through our mutual friend, Daisy Robinson. Dr. Daisy Robinson was a guest on True Sex and Wild Love recently. And I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and tell people exactly what it is that you do. Yeah. Um, I guess first and foremost, I'm a scientist. Uh, I'm in my fourth year of my PhD at Northwestern University where I study virology or the study of viruses. Um, I know COVID 
it was a new thing. Uh, it wasn't around prior to 2019. Coronaviruses were, of course. So that's not the focus of my study. I actually study neuroinvasive herpes viruses, which sounds terrifying. Um, but they're viruses. Sometimes the herpes viruses, when they infect you, they get into your nervous system. And so that's what we focus on. Okay, maybe we can talk about that a little bit today as well. <laughs> oh, yes, I would love to. <laughs> Anything that has to do with viruses, I am. That's that's why I you there. You're <laughs> you're just a fan of viruses. I I am. You know, only a few of them make us sick. They're not great, but uh, they're very cool. Very cool. Well, why don't you start by just explaining to us what in the heck even is a virus? You go to the doctor and they say. Well, it's not a bacterial infection. It's viral. We can't give you any antibiotics. Just go home and rest. Oh, what such, is a virus? Such a good question. You know, and <laughs> it, you'd be surprised with how many people don't make those correlations between antibiotics and viruses not working together. Um, yeah. So viruses are these weird, I like to think of them as like the terminators of life. So they're, <laughs> they're not alive, but they're not really dead either. They're in this limbo where they- They're like zombie terminators. They, there we go. Yeah. They they mimic life, kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger looks all jacked like a human, but then you realize mm. that underneath, he's not human. Um, and that's what viruses are. They're, they're really just this package of, of information. That's all they are. So they've got a, a shell around them that they use to protect it. And then inside of them, they have genetic material, which can be either DNA- which is what's inside of all of the cells of every living thing. Or sometimes they can use RNA, which is kind of an intermediate that we make from our DNA. Got it. Viruses are packages of information in a shell. That's, that's literally all they are. They, they don't have an agenda. They don't have any, anything to do. They're just information <laughs> that says, hey, we should make some more of us. Hey, let's get in there and make tons and tons of ourselves. Okay. I love that uh, very simple description of a virus. That is very enlightening for me. And I hope it will be for other people because viruses are all over the place. Um, and of course, the one that we're talking about and most concerned about now in the US is what we call the coronavirus, COVID-19. And could you Tell us a little bit about, first of all, I want to talk about how you said that viruses don't have an agenda. You know, there, there are people in the United States, unfortunately, uh, who believe that COVID-19 was planned. Um, they believe that it's being, um, that they, they minimize maybe the risks of COVID to vulnerable people, or they just simply think that, you know, it was created in a lab and um, loosened on us. What can you tell us about that? What is the science about how uh, COVID came to be? You know, I, I, my personal thoughts on this, which are supported by many other scientists, is that it's highly unlikely that this was generated in a lab. Uh, early on, we were able to trace a lot of the genetics and see how closely it's linked to other coronaviruses that were already out there in other animals. Um, right. T tell people what that is, a virus that jumps from an animal to the human population. Yeah. So we call these zoonotic viruses. Um, zoo, zoo just is 
think of a zoo comes from animals. Um, and when they hop over, you have this crossover event. So it crosses over from one type of animal, one species into another. And this happens frequently, all the time, in fact. Um, and then we have lots and lots of paradigms for this. Yeah. I mean, if you want a really easy one to think of, flu. So flu is not a natural infection of human beings. It actually comes from birds. Um, so think geese and ducks. They're, they're the primary reservoir for influenza viruses. But when they pick up mutations, flu viruses are so crazy, so cool. They mutate so, so quickly, um, which is also terrifying. But when they pick <laughs> up mutations, that sometimes allows them in the right circumstances, you know, you have to have the right mutation. You have to be next to the right person uh, in order for them to pick it up. And then it has to work inside of them. But if all those things come together, then all of a sudden you can have a new virus that can spread in a new host like humans. Right. And, and this has happened many, many times that a virus has jumped from an animal host to a human. So people can dig into that a little bit more deeply. But the World Health Organization uh, was just in China, in Wuhan, doing an extensive study. And they determined that no, it, uh, COVID-19 was not created in a lab and, and uh, you know, loosened onto the world. That's just untrue. Um, so... You know, it's so funny, Kenan, to get your sort of fascinated perspective on how viruses work. You told us what viruses are. They're information, like a communication wrapped wrapped in a shell. Um, tell us how, for example, COVID works uh, once it once a person is exposed to it. Yeah, so this this SARS-CoV-2 is this virus that causes the disease COVID-19. Um, and essentially, this is a very interesting virus in itself in the fact that it's it's very large. So it's I told you earlier that viruses can either have RNA or DNA as their their internal instructions for how they operate, right? Right. And so this this is an RNA virus. And normally RNA viruses like flu or polio, they're, they're relatively small. They have like maybe 11,000 letters in their instructions as compared to like us humans, we have 3.2 mm. billion letters in our instructions. Um, but this, the SARS virus actually has 30,000. So it, it has a lot more instructions inside of it. It's sizable. It, it's, it's fairly large. <laughs> it's just, um, if you're a size queen, this just might be your virus, but stay away from it anyway. Hey, I mean, it does get its name. Corona mean crown, so it's the king of viruses. Maybe that pairs up with your your queens. Yeah, maybe it does. Maybe it does, Kenan. Thanks for going with my um, early morning analogy. <laughs> but I would not recommend trying to pair with this one. Um, so once it infects you, it's going to bind to these receptors. And you can think of a receptor as a doorway into a cell. So every cell has different mm. types of doors on them or receptors. And in order to get into those cells, to understand the little city that's inside of there, you have to have the right key. Uh-huh. So, Can we just talk, tell people right now that uh, what this virus loves is ACE receptors, right? That's right. Angiotensin converting enzyme 2 or ACE2. Yep. And what, yeah, tell, tell me what those are. So this is one of these receptors that's expressed 
pretty thoroughly throughout your body. So cells in your respiratory tract, so that's going to be your nose, your throat, your lungs, they're going to express those. But you also express these in your cardiovascular system. So your heart, your um, veins, and your just the highway that your blood travels through, you express it throughout your GI tract. So in your stomach, in your intestines, uh, it, it's all throughout your body, which is why there's a, a wide variety of symptoms that can occur with COVID as well, because you aren't necessarily just being restricted to being infected in your lungs. Great. Thank you for explaining to us what those ACR receptors are and and why you know people who have COVID-19 have different symptoms. Some people have kind of mild GI upset right? Some people develop long-term heart problems after they have COVID. Some people have a, a cough that's so intense that they, um, early on, we used to ventilate a lot of people and some people still need to be ventilated. So that's uh, the reason that COVID symptoms uh, are so diverse, if you will. Yeah. Those ACE2 receptors. Okay. So you told us how this virus enters and is it that it bonds to ACE2 receptors? Yeah, so it, it it attaches to it is you could think of think of the virus. I said it's like a package, right? So like this kind of like bouncing ball and it's going to be bouncing along cells until it finds one of these ACE2 receptors and then it's going to stick to it. And that's going to say, oh, this is a cell that I can get into. Got it. And then it uses a special kind of protein to do that. Is that correct? Yeah. So tell us about that. So, once, if this ACE2 receptor is the doorway or the bouncer to the cell, then Mm -hmm. the virus has to have a synonymous protein. Um, That's got to be the key, right? Or the, the passport that says, hey, I belong in here. I love this analogy that the virus, if you want to get into us, you need a key. That's that's yeah. That's how all viruses work, and and how you can parse out what's where they actually infect. Right? If if every virus could get into every cell, then we'd be in big trouble. So it can only get into the cell that has the right receptor. In this case, ACE two, and then its spike protein. It's going to be the key that matches up with ACE two and tricks the cell into saying, "Oh yeah, you should come on in." Hey, come on in. Yeah. yeah. So this is where I, I like I love the Terminator reference, right? So I do too. if you had just a giant robot that was all shiny and metal, you'd look at that and you go, that's danger. We're not letting you into this place, right? Right. The Terminator puts on its skin to look like a human and it tricks you into interacting with it and saying, Oh yeah, sure, come on in. And that's exactly what the virus is doing. Oh wow. Wow. Okay. I think, you know, with your Terminator analogy, you're just taking us to a different place with this. And it's becoming so clear because I've read this stuff time and time again. I had to look at an illustration of the spike protein to understand what it was, but it really is literally like a spike. Yeah. And um, then I, now that I have the Terminator in my head, it's just all coming together. (laughs) I'm I'm, glad that it's helpful for someone other than me. (laughs) Then I'm adding to it a whole chastity belt analogy, right? That the Terminator needs the key, right? That's right. Did you ever watch- And my N95 mask is my my chastity belt. (laughs) (laughs) 
That works. That works. <laughs> now we're like, now, we're, now our analogy is just going in many directions. I'm going back to yours. Um, I just had to throw in the chastity belt just because trying to, trying to lighten things up a little, but you know, people do need to have imagery and stories that they tell themselves to understand how a virus works and how, uh, how you get COVID, how COVID happens in your body. So Thank you for that. And I love this idea that, you know, the virus mimics something that your body recognizes so that your body will say, hey, come on in. Welcome. Yes. I, and I love that you were talking about like the, the storytelling in terms of it, because I, I think that that's part of what's been lost throughout all of this. I mean, inconsistent messaging has been a huge problem, but also I think that there's a huge disconnect between when scientists are presenting things and we're just like, here's ACE2 and here's the spike protein and you get this endocytosis of your viral particle. And it's like, I don't know. If you didn't go to school for that, why why should I care about this? Why can't you just tell it to me as an interesting story that makes sense? And this is what makes people like you and Dr. Daisy Robinson so special and so priceless that you can communicate science. You can take this, you can take these data and cross them over in ways that people understand. And that's what a science communicator does. And I mean, it's not every scientist can, in fact, let's be real, Ken, and very few scientists can be science communicators. With with practice, I would like to hope that more can, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it definitely comes from having a good background. For me, I yeah. always joke around that I'm the I like being the dumbest guy in the room because then when I understand something, like I can explain it to somebody. Well, or just like a super smart person in the room who has storytelling abilities and the ability to use analogies that people understand, which I really appreciate. So we have some uh, ways to protect ourselves from this Terminator with the key to our chastity belt. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Let's talk about, uh, so previously, you know, the way that we could protect ourselves uh, from COVID-19 uh, was and remains wearing masks, uh, socially distancing, washing our hands a lot, don't be up in other people's grills without a mask on. Um, and a lot of us uh, were in states where there was a degree of quarantining, self-quarantining, which people called lockdown in some places. And yet, you know, and many people took these measures, uh, which, which are truly helpful. We have the science that shows us as much. There's a great graphic uh, on the New York Times website about how masks work, how they prevent droplets uh, from escaping and getting into another person's body. So I, I recommend that people have a look at that. But we still have a real problem where I am in California. Um, and people are now talking about variants. Can you talk to us about those variants, Kenya, yeah. of COVID-19? Yeah. Um, or wait, I'm supposed to be calling it. SARS, 
Tell me what to call it. SARS-CoV-2 is the the technical, because scientists are so great at naming things. That's the technical name for the virus. (laughs) Everybody knows what you're talking about if you're saying COVID-19, but that's the disease. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus and COVID-19 is the disease. Correct. Because again, really great at naming. COVID-19 is coronavirus disease, COVID, and then it showed up in 2019. So brilliant. So brilliant. They're like robots uh, in a Star Wars um, movie. Okay. Love, love it. Hate the virus. Uh, love, love the, the weird names. So tell us about these variants of SARS CO. I already forgot what to call it. Yeah, that's fine. We can refer to it as COVID. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think to, this is, this is a great bridgeway because it leads into the, as we'll talk about these variants, it leads into the importance of defeating the virus, um, but it also bridges to how the virus works, which is what we were talking about previously. And so do you mind if I just wrap up what we were talking about how the virus works so we can understand how these variants... Please, please, yes. Uh, yeah, okay. So the we, we left off with, essentially, you need the spike protein is the key or the, the path, the ID to get into the cell. And then once it's in the cell then the virus will take over the cell. It essentially shuts all the cell's functions down to turn into just a factory to make more viruses. And eventually that kills the cell. When you get, it makes one virus in a cell can make thousands of more viruses. And then you can see how those can go on to affect thousands of cells and you get a lot of cell death and you get sick. Um, so in terms of how we defeat that during an infection is your body isn't just this wimpy, system that's just like, oh no, a virus is in me, I'm done. You've got your immune system. And so your immune system is this very amazing, complicated defense system in your body that recognizes things that shouldn't be in there and has a way of destroying, fighting back and destroying them. And so the the key, the endpoint of your immune system are what we call antibodies. And these are I don't have a great analogy for them. They look like a Y, but essentially these are like police officers that, uh, that's also a, a controversial thing, I guess, nowadays, but I still- Good police officers. Yes, yes. I, where I grew up, they were all great. I felt very safe with my police. Oh, um, police officers. Yeah. But essentially what they do is these antibodies go around and they recognize, actually, they might even be just good civilians who are finding what's bad, what shouldn't be there, and they attach to the viral proteins. And so once the, they're attached, they tag them and say, hey, this shouldn't be here. We need to clean it up. And your immune system says, oh, this has antibodies on it. We need to destroy it. Tagged. Get it out of here. Yep. So the Y, they're, so they're shaped like Ys they and are. they attach to the virus, alerting other parts of the immune system. Hey, get this out of here. Exactly. Uh, and not just the virus. They, they, if, the certain they attach to specific proteins um, from the virus, and some of those proteins might be expressed by infected cells. So they attach to the virus to block viruses from getting into cells to infect you in the first place. But they also attach to infected cells to say, "Hey, this is a virus factory. We need to shut this down." Got it. So where variants come in is these antibodies, which are like our, our prime resource for identifying what shouldn't be in your body they recognize specific sites on the proteins. And one of the most common sites that's really important for the virus, which we talked about, is that spike protein, right? 
That's its key to get into its cells. Right. And so one way that viruses try to escape your immune system, it's always a race between who can win your immune system or the virus. And one of the virus's defense mechanisms is that it mutates. It changes different sites inside of its proteins. Back to the Terminator. Back to the Terminator, just shape-shifting, right? Yes, exactly. That's that's really well done. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to keep up, Kenan. No, that's great. Uh, yeah, so the, the virus, the Terminator virus shapeshifts or changes how its face looks or how different parts of it looks. And if it can fool the antibodies, they can no longer recognize this any, anymore, which means that they can't bind to it. They can't neutralize the virus. They can't shut oh, it down. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's not good. And this is, people, I think people should know that this is not just uh, COVID, that this is what viruses do. They mutate. All the time. They're really bad at every time. Everybody mutates. So a mutation, it sounds scary. Uh, most of the time it does nothing. But every time, every single living thing and viruses, they have to copy the instructions. So they, we copy our DNA in our cells every time we get new cells, whether that's fat cells, whether we're growing up, whether that's muscle cells. Every time you, you have to copy... And when you're writing something down, when you're typing in Word, do you type every word perfectly or do you get the little red squiggles underneath your line sometimes? Oh, I'm, I am the mistress of red squiggles. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, so is your body. So you make these mistakes and if you don't proofread it and go back and change it, any mistakes that stay, that's a mutation. And oh. a mutation can, sometimes it can do nothing. Sometimes it can change what we call an amino acid, which is a building block of a protein. Um, and that, that can do something or it could also do nothing. Sometimes, a lot of times in viruses, because their, their DNA or their RNA is so small, they don't have a lot of room for error. And so a lot of times mutations actually will kill the virus, will make them ineffective. But every once in a while, every so often you can pick up a mutation that might be beneficial. And that's, that's where these variants kind of come in. Got it. Let's talk about the big variants right now. For example, I'm in LA. I've been here since mid-December and people kept saying, how how are we having this surge? What's going on? And I thought, well, it's because so many people here are not masking, um, are, you know, got together for the holidays. We're a gregarious species. Uh, it's hard for us uh, really to isolate. But then a new factor came along and people started talking about the LA variant of COVID. Can, so what are the variants and um, are our usual measures effective against them? Yes. To, just to start off, yes. The answer to that yes. last part. Uh, so the variants are just these as I said, every single time that a virus is making more viruses, there's going to be mutations and that doesn't make a variant. A variant is essentially when you have one or a handful of these mutations that lead to amino acid changes that stick around. Um, and so I'm sure there's, there's a ton of them out there. The ones that we're probably most familiar with, you just talked about the one in California, um, the LA variant, I think that's the Cal20C. Um, but then there's the, the U- I hate naming them by places. This is just where they're discovered. It's not, by no means is it that place's <laughs> fault. 
Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah, that's a crazy tendency that we have. Yeah, so B117 is a really popular one. People have referred to it as the UK variant because it was discovered there. Not necessarily that that is where it happened. Um, and then there's the B1357 uh, variant, which is the South African variant. That's That's got people a little bit more hesitant, worried. But these have picked up mutations that seem to, A, uh, allow these, these variants, these versions of the virus that have these changes to be spread amongst other people. And so they kind of take over as predominant pockets. And B, they have uh, higher affinities or changes that make the virus a little bit different from the original virus that, that we'd identified that was infecting people. Got it. Makes that's sense. really, yeah, that's really helpful. Now let's pivot a little bit because we're talking about the ways we can protect ourselves from COVID-19, whichever variant it is. And some people think these newer variants, some scientists are telling us these newer variants are more transmissible, but they're also saying that all the things in our toolkit, if you will, uh, will continue to be effective, including masks. CDC has recommended that if you only have access to cloth masks, you should wear two of those if you don't have an N95. They've recommended continuing to socially distance if you want to see people, you know, see them outside and not a whole bunch of people and and keep your distance outside with your masks on. And then um, they're continuing, CDC is continuing to recommend hand washing, but now we have a new thing that can help protect us if we can get access to it, which is the vaccine. Yay! Yay. (laughs) Okay. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about this virus and how it works. How does a vaccine stop it? And so let's start with that. Yeah, yeah. I... I guess total bias here is I'm a big vaccine fan because as somebody who works in infectious disease, a vaccine, yeah. hand washing and vaccines have been the two greatest things to prevent transmissible diseases. Right? Just I mean, yeah. Hand, and- hands down, sanitation and the ability to train your body to naturally fight off something that could otherwise kill you. Are, it's, it's amazing. I always like to joke, at our institute, we're a big cancer research institute. So I always joke with my cancer research buddies that, you know, cancer's still out there. Nobody's cured cancer yet. Guess what's not out there anymore? Smallpox. Yeah. Mumps. Yeah. We've, polio. We, we, polio is expected to be eradicated from the planet. It's not here in the United States, but from the planet by the year 2022, according to the WHO. So, I mean, thank God for vaccines. I want to I back up a tiny bit and tell you, Kenan, that I have um, a 19-year-old and a 13-year-old. And I remember when they were little, I went to the pediatrician and, you know, I believe in science. I'm a trained social scientist. I I love hard science, as uh, some people like to call it as well. And in spite of all the information that I had and had access to, I was really, really hesitant for my little infants um, to get vaccinated. I was scared because a study came out um, that argued and and um, proposed to actually demonstrate a link between vaccines and autism. 
Now that study, maybe it, it was within the last 20 years and it was a huge study and it got a lot of attention and it helped start an anti-vaccine movement in the United States. Now, between the time of my first and second child, um, there was, I believe, a meta study and another study saying, hold up this whole panic that we've induced in parents um, is completely unfounded. And that paper linking um, early childhood vaccines to um, autism was retracted, right? Which is, that is a rare occurrence in science, in academic science. I mean, pretty rare. Um, But so a lot of people are still harboring these fears about vaccines based on um, a a paper that has been retracted. Um, Vaccines are absolutely beneficial. We have Years and years of evidence. Do you not have polio? You can thank vaccines. Do you not have mumps or measles? You can say thank you to vaccines. But I just want to address before we start talking about this, there are people who are very, very nervous about vaccines. And I think it's so important that they just get some basic information about how vaccines work in general and why the COVID vaccine is not something that they have to worry about. That is beautifully said. And I I guess first and foremost is I am 100% in support of parents who have vaccine hesitancy. Asking questions is the right thing to do. And anybody who tells you, you need to go do this and doesn't take the time to educate you about that so that you feel comfortable in that, I, they're doing it wrong. I've told multiple people through my platform is I've had parents reach out to me and I say, you know what, if your pediatrician is just like saying, get these vaccines and you're dumb for it, you just find a new pediatrician. Their knowledge is power. And that's what it's all about. You have every right to choose what is right for your child, what is right for you. Uh, and just when you know the science behind it, instead of just hearing you talked about the Wakefield paper, which was the, the I hate to use this term, but almost the fake newspaper. Um, yes about about MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, and it's linked to autism, which has been shown thoroughly not to exist. Um, but when you absolutely, have that, it's, it's let's say it, absolutely, vaccines absolutely do not cause autism, period. Yes-ish. I hate absolutes. <laughs> I hate absolutes. <laughs> if you're giving an absolute, uh, it, it's hard to say. What I will say, this is just because I'm a scientist and I got to cover my, my end, is vaccines absolutely do not cause autism at a higher rate or link than not getting a vaccine. So that means that if you do get a vaccine or if you don't get a vaccine, your child is just as likely to develop autism. So you can't say that vaccines cause autism directly. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and there's, there's a lot of great stories. I always love to show there's a really great correlative study that shows that increases with um, organic foods directly parallels increases with autism. So you could make the argument that eating organic food causes autism, which again, I, it, I, I don't think that that's the case. But just because things sh- happen around the same time does not mean that they're linked. And I think there's a lot of factors. A, increases in diagnose, in our diagnosis. Um, so I always like to say, we used to think that 
women thinking that they had a right to have an orgasm meant that they had hysteria and we would lock people up for that. And now we're like, oh no, this is a, this is, this is a good thing. This is a natural phenomenon, right? And so we also used to think that people who were on the autism spectrum disorder, uh, they had some sort of mental disorder that wasn't autism. It wasn't defined. And now we have much better resources and diagnostics to start identifying that. So that's going to increase your the cases of autism, right? Yeah. Um, we also have changes in our health. We Our diets are very different from how they used to be. Our pollution is very different. Uh, the environments that we live in are very different. So there's a lot of things in autism, similar to Alzheimer's disease, is a very complex disease. Got it. Thanks for clarifying that. And you know, a lot of times what scientists will say is correlation is not causation. Um, those are different things. So, you know, I like that analogy about organic food, eating organic food, tracking with um, higher higher incidence of autism, but, you know, not causing it. So that's really helpful, Kenan. Thank you. Um, you know, I want to also just honor that, uh, you know, some people, particularly people in communities of color, um, Black people, um, uh, Latinx people, you know, there. This, this government has had a history of abusing people in the name of medical science, right? So, probably most people know about the Tuskegee um, human rights violations that happened when um, men were deliberately infected with syphilis, um, and there have been forced sterilizations of. Um, Puerto Rican women for many years and uh, Latinas, you know, in the United States. And so some communities have really good reason to be very skeptical about governmental science and medicine. But, and, and I want to know, how do you deal with that as a vaccine educator? Um, educating about a virus for which we have a vaccine and it's a virus which has particularly impacted communities of color, right? We've seen that really dramatically in Los Angeles and in New York um, that Latinx people are disproportionately impacted by COVID um, as are Black people um, a a lot of times because of systemic racism. How do you as a vaccine educator help everybody understand uh, why this vaccine is beneficial? And then how especially do you communicate with communities of color? Yeah. Uh, I mean, first, the historical evidence of mistreatment in science, unfortunately, is there. And that's that it's, it's not something that used to happen. I mean, the Tuskegee trial is what people often think of, and that ended in the early 70s. Um, but even today, there, there, there are studies that show that Medical f- providers have an innate bias to think that African Americans and people of color have higher pain tolerances. And so there's actually a discrepancy between um, administration of pain relieving medications to people of color versus white patients. So it, it's, it, it exists. And that's happening right now. Right, right now, now, there are medical residents who go 
into hospitals believing that black women have a higher pain tolerance than white women. And so the black women don't need or warrant, you know, an epidural or other pain medication during childbirth. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, it is, Kevin. It is unacceptable. I have a very hard line um, in terms of that, but just the fact that it's still happening today warrants the fact that this hesitancy. And so I'm actually, I'm African-American. I, my dad, side of the fit, my dad actually literally was born in Africa. Um, so having this, this link to, to understanding the racial disparities, um, just based on my, the color of my skin and the realism of that this happens in the world today, I have to face this as well. But what I try to do when I talk to people is I don't, it's hard because the emotional side of things is always there. But if you have the evidence, the evidence doesn't lie. And so that when I talk about viruses, when I talk about vaccines, I want to just talk about the evidence. We have this evidence that it is not going to make you sick. Uh, it's not going to, this vaccine is not going to give you COVID-19. We have the evidence that these vaccines do protect you. And we also have the evidence that if you have, especially people from uh, backgrounds of color, I actually, I hate that term, backgrounds of color. It sounds like I'm trying to be too PC. People in like yeah. communities, Latinx communities, they have higher risk for comorbidities, essentially, which often lead to more severe outcomes from this disease. So they are disproportionately getting sicker from it. And so it's like you have hard evidence that this vaccine works. You have hard evidence that you're already, without the vaccine, your communities are already getting hit hard. And so if you just look at the evidence, hopefully that convinces you. But I am my job as a scientist, as a science communicator, is never to tell somebody what to do. It's just to equip you with the information so that you feel empowered to make whatever decision you feel is right for you. That's so, so well said and so important because um, we know that Americans, we know from the way that not everybody took up masking and other precautions. You know, we live in a kind of um, gregarious democracy. We have this wild, wild west mentality. And we know that all Americans are not going to just take a vaccine because people tell them uh, that it's protective and that they should. We're going to have to equip them with information, as you said, to make the choice themselves. So I think one of the first things um, to address is a lot of people think that if a COVID vaccine, they will be in the injection will be live COVID. Can you explain this to people? That is, that is not the case. Uh, there, I'm sure there, there's only two vaccines that I can think of off the top of my head that use a live virus. That's your chickenpox vaccine and the nasal spray for the flu vaccine. Right. Um, which my kids always wanted, right? <laughs> they didn't want to get a shot and they wanted the nasal flu vaccine. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> Just, oh my God. I would okay. love, <laughs> we could have like six segments over vaccines there. And by, uh, yes. So go on. I broke your, I broke your flow. Uh, um, but for the vaccines that are uh, authorized, so they have emergency use authorization here in the United States, we have the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, which as a scientist are very exciting vaccines. These are mRNA-based vaccines, which first and foremost means that there's no virus in them, none at all. It is physically, scientifically 
just in the rules of how our world works, impossible for you to get sick with the virus from this shot. I want to make sure that everybody listening understands that when you're getting a COVID vaccine, which I hope you will have the opportunity to do, you are not being injected with live COVID so that your body will mount an immune response. It's an mRNA vaccine. So it works very differently. Tell people, Kenan. Yeah. And so this is actually what's really exciting about it. So mRNA, I always describe, there's a, there's a process in all of life, which we call the central dogma. So DNA is turned to RNA, is turned to proteins in that flow. And so DNA, you can think of as a giant cookbook that has all of your recipes or I know this is a sex podcast, so it could be the Karma Sutra that has all of the positions. RNA is the single recipe from that book um, or a single position from that book. And then protein is the actual action of the making the dish or doing the action, right? Say that again, would you please? <laughs> yeah, so DNA is the entire instructions. RNA is a single instruction from the book. And then protein is the the product that you make from that instruction. Love it. And so the way that these RNA virus vaccines work uh, is the the vaccine is literally just a little bubble of fat. So it's it's kind of like a a viral life particle where we've used science to mimic it. uh, Because remember, a virus is just a little package of instructions. It's just a package of instructions in a shell or lipid. That's right. And so I know there's a lot of talk about there's these nanoparticles, but all a lipid nanoparticle is a lipid means fat and nanoparticle just means that it's a tiny nano-sized particle. And so it's just a little fat particle, all it is to it. That's Uh, it. Inside of that is a single instruction, which is the mRNA. So that single instruction from the book to make just one protein from the the virus. And I mean just make that spike protein is that what it is? That's the one you I was going to say can you venture a guess which which protein and it's it's that that spike protein that key spike protein. That key that the virus uses to get into your cells and why this is good is because now we can start teaching teaching your body, training your body how to make those antibodies against that spike protein that key so that if you get infected with the real virus you already have those antibodies, that defense to stop the virus from getting into your cells in the first place. Normally it takes about a week to two weeks to start making those antibodies when you first get it exposed, which is why when you get the vaccine, you typically wait uh, a few weeks uh, for these two dose ones, you'll get a primer and a booster. And then following the last shot, so if it's Pfizer, Moderna, after your second dose, about two weeks afterwards is when we say that you have like this optimal immune response. And so what, why that's important is if you get infected with the real virus, it's going to be about two weeks of your body fighting until you have those antibodies to protect you from the next time. Um, and we can talk about why it's still important to get vaccinated, even if you've had COVID. But- yeah, let's talk about exactly that. Um, so that you told us how the M- mRNA vaccine is different from some of the other vaccines we might be familiar with, like the nasal flu and the chickenpox vaccine, which use live virus. Um, You've explained how these vaccines are different, 
but yes to the to what you propose we talk about yeah next yes please yeah so yeah so the the vaccine is just giving you one of the proteins from the from the virus so that your body can make those antibodies against it and the the benefit to getting the vaccine is that we have these clinical trials we have the data and we have the people that we can track to say a big question is, is this going to be like the flu where I need to get a shot every year? And the answer is we don't know. But by watching how long immunity lasts from people who have the vaccines, we can, we can let you know. So if you have, if it's like the chicken pox vaccine, or if it's like the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or the polio vaccine, you get it. And then you could have, be protected for 20 years, 40 years. Maybe you need a booster a little bit later. Or maybe you're only protected for five years and you need a booster. But by getting the vaccine, we know, okay, this is how long you're roughly protected for. And we can now let you know when you're, you're at risk of not being protected. Versus, because everybody gets a standard dose, I guess that's what I should say. Everybody gets the same dose right. of the vaccine. Whereas if you get infected naturally by the virus, we don't know what your exposure was. There's, there's no direct, really hard, strong correlation between symptoms and antibody titers or symptoms and immune response. And so you could have an asymptomatic infection that protects you for 90 days and now you, you're, you could get it again. We also right. don't know what the long-term effects of, of having this are. We know, I, we talked earlier how this virus can affect your cardiovascular system and other things. So that'll be interesting and a little worrisome to see later. Whereas the vaccine's not going to do this because it's not a full-fledged virus, right? Right, exactly. This is why, listen to this, people who are like, let me just get it and get it over with. When I was a kid, Ken, and we had chicken pox parties. Oh, I went to one of those two as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> it was not so fun. For anybody, and you know, this was a thought in the UK early on, just let a bunch of people get it and oh. we'll get herd immunity that way. It was also the thinking in Sweden. And let's say that was a catastrophe. That was a, an epidemiological shit show. So, so ethically not right. I mean, even if yeah. only, even if only one percent of people die from this, I for me, I don't know. I just if you have the ability to stop one percent of of any of any population from dying, I don't know. As a healthcare provider, as a healthcare researcher, like I feel like that's our responsibility. How can you just be like, you know what? We're going to let everybody get it, but it's okay. A few of you are going to die. Not my problem. That seems so wrong. That seems really wrong from a public health perspective. And, you know, it, it's kind of understandable why people who consider themselves young and healthy might say, well, you know, I don't feel at really high risk for this, but have to emphasize that, you know, it's not just about your personal risk. It's the people that you see um, and then maybe their grandparents or their parents. So there's that aspect to it. And just about the 1% thing. I mean, 500,000 people, half a million people, that's a lot of people who will have died of COVID in the United States. That is a number that is too high for a preventable death. I, and I understand, I don't know, there's a lot of complexity to this. I My feelings towards like the lockdowns and where we're at right now with kids not being in school, there's a lot of other health risks that are going on. But I, it really hurts my heart uh, in the most earnest way to think of like the preventative measures we could have taken earlier to have saved those lives. And what I look right. forward to is with these vaccines and with hopefully more people up taking them is that that 500,000 number is going to be a, a 
a mark in history. That's a sad mark for the world, but yeah. won't be a number going into the future, right? Great point. Um, you know, and Kenan, you know, just to wrap up, and I'd love to have you on again, um, but to wrap up, when people, what, what can you say to people who are on the fence about, and there are very few people who are on the fence. I mean, I feel like people are either, when it comes to vaccines and COVID, people are either believers or disbelievers, but we do have very thoughtful listeners who have listened to every word that you've said. And what can you say to those who are teetering, you know, and about the advisability of getting this vaccine? Yeah. Uh, I, I like to think that the people who are strong in one camp or the other are, are smaller people. There's like a Gaussian, a normal distribution. And the people in the middle are actually the larger ones. And this is where I love my role as a science communicator is just being able to have these honest communications with them and these education, these educational talks so that they can make the best decision for them. Again, I'm never going to tell any of your listeners, anybody, go get the vaccine. I want you to have all the evidence and say, you know what? This vaccine uh, has a 95% efficacy. So it's, it's very effective at protecting me uh, and more importantly, as we're starting to see with new evidence, protecting my loved ones and the people around me. Uh, this vaccine is very safe. Um, I think the, the largest adverse reaction I've seen has been anaphylactic shock, mostly in people who've had, or anaphylaxis, mostly in people who've had a history. Um, and still, that's, that's, it's much lower than actually the symptoms of getting the virus. So it's safe, it's effective. And I think the most important and exciting thing for me personally is that it is the best way to get us back to normal. I miss hugging people. I miss partying with people. I'm, I'm not as young as I used to be anymore, but I, I still want to go out to the bars and whatnot. And this yeah. is the best way to do it and feel safe and comfortable and back to normality. And if you ever have any questions, any of your listeners, please feel free to reach out. I, I love giving you information. And if you get the information and you still decide that it's not the right choice for you, that's okay. But at least you have the information and you can make that decision. Great point. I so appreciate that, Ken. Ken, and I want to have you back on to talk about sexuality and COVID. Um, and um, that that's going to be another great discussion that hopefully we'll get to have with Ken and soon, um, because I think that's really important. But thank you so much for this basic groundwork uh, so that people can understand vaccines and the COVID vaccine, especially what's at stake um, and how, how they could benefit from it. And just some, some data points. Really appreciate that, Kenan. Uh, how else can people find you on social media? Uh, I am underneath just my name, Kenan Hutchison, uh, across all accounts. I'm most active on Instagram. And yeah, I guess that's it. I'm on Snapchat for some reason. I don't know why I said that, but Instagram, uh, YouTube, I have Science with Kenan and uh, yeah, Twitter, I guess as well. That's great. And just so that people know on Kenan's Instagram, he has a great talk with Daisy Robinson. Dr. Daisy Robinson interviewed him um, and lots of fascinating information that's very digestible and engaging about COVID and the vaccines. All right, Kenan, I feel much more educated than I did when we sat down 
And I want to thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to our listeners. And also just thank you so much for your mission to communicate science in general. It's so critical and I love the way you do it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I guess enjoy your, enjoy your Friday, Wednesday. Thanks, Kenan. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.